Shmuel Rosner is a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute, a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, the senior political editor for the Jewish Journal, columnist for Israel's newspaper Ma'ariv, and the chief nonfiction editor for Israel's largest publishing house, Kineret Zamor Dvir. Shmuel was previously a columnist for the Jerusalem Post and was formerly the chief U.S. correspondent and head of the news division and the features division for Israel's daily newspaper, Haaretz. He's been published in many magazines, including Foreign Policy, Commentary of the New Republic, and many more. I traveled to Tel Aviv on a hot summer day to visit Shmuel in his house. We sat down and discussed his new book, Israeli Judaism. Whether Israeli Jews are becoming more secular or religious, new Israeli ways of expressing their Judaism, the reform movement in the state of Israel, the Rabbanut, American-Israeli Jewish relations, Zionism, and much more. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figure It Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickle shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. This episode of Jewish People and Ideas is sponsored by JerusalemEverything.com an online Jerusalem artist cooperative which sells high-quality original Jewish art in Judaica at low-cost prices, all made in Israel and shipped from Jerusalem. To learn more, go to JerusalemEverything.com. In your book here, Israeli Judaism, which I told you I just finished reading this morning. When I first started reading the book, I was confused because the title is Israeli Judaism. At first, I thought about Reform Judaism, Conservative Judaism, Orthodox Judaism. I wondered, what's, what's Israeli Judaism? And then you start off with this quote from the Talmud, where the rabbis of the Talmud said, go out and observe what the people are doing, which the rabbis wanted to use as a way of understanding how are people practicing Judaism, halachic Judaism. And then I, I thought this was very controversial. You said, can the custom of not reciting a blessing be considered a new law? as far as halacha is concerned. So this is the beginning of the book, and I'm reading the book, I'm saying, what do you mean Israeli Judaism? But then, as I progress through the book, and the truth is, it's on almost the last page. The last page is 193, and on page 192, explain what Israeli Judaism is. You say, it takes no effort for Israeli Jews to engage with Jewish tradition. It's always there. That being a Jew, a Hebrew-speaking Jew in the state of Israel, you can maintain a Jewish identity because the state provides it, the culture provides it, the place provides it. Is that what Israeli Judaism is? Well, you, you can substitute Israeli Judaism with effortless Judaism. And um, thinking about effortless Judaism, you know, it sounds benign, but, but when you think about Jewish history and about this very notion that being Jewish is always difficult and always used to be difficult, it was always a struggle. You know, there is this famous saying, you know, it's, it's hard to be Jewish. This notion of having to battle against enemies and against uh, the, the outside world and against anti-Semitism and against a majority culture, which in most times was not a Jewish culture. So for the first time in at least 2,000 years, it's easy to be Jewish in Israel. It's not a struggle. It's not difficult. It's not something. It's not counterculture. It's the culture. 
It's what people do here. It's what we call life in Israel. And this is why I think Israeli Judaism is unique. It's unique to a time and a place. It's unique to this place, the state of Israel. And it's unique to the last 70, 80 years of our existence. It was never done in such way before anywhere in the world. And that's why I think it merits, justifies a book of its own. You know, there are many streams and many viewpoints and many, you know, sects in Judaism. But to look at the Jewish people today and understand that about half of all Jews in the world live in a place in which Judaism redefined itself in a fashion that makes it easy to observe. That's a revolutionary thing, and that's why we call the book, you know, Israeli Judaism, Portrait of a Cultural Revolution. It is a revolution in Jewish history. I think what you just said is what confused me. Most religions are separate from a nation and a land and a language. Judaism is connected to the Jewish people, is connected to the land of Israel, is connected to the Hebrew language. And when you take Jews and you put them in the land of Israel, speaking Hebrew, it's not that the, the Judaism is being replaced, it's that Jewish identity, a way of maintaining Jewish identity is being replaced. Well, you know, what you raise here is, is a great philosophical question. What is Judaism? I personally reject the notion that Judaism is a religion, but I'm not the important person here. What I try to demonstrate in the book, me and, and the, my co-author, Professor Camille Fuchs, who's a mathematician and a statistician and a pollster in Israel, and we conducted a series of surveys in Israel by which we demonstrate that the Jews in Israel basically reject the notion that Judaism is a religion. For most Jews in Israel, Judaism is a culture, is, it's a way of life, it's, a, it's an identity. They do not associate Judaism with a very specific and well-defined set of behaviors, the way Orthodox Judaism does. It is not for them an exact philosophy. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not, it's not as if, you know, if you accept the 13 principles of At Maimonides, you are, you're the, the proper Jew. For most Jews in Israel, Judaism is just, it's, it's, again, it's the way of life. It's what they do. And that's why we begin with this quote from the Talmud, you know, go and observe what the people are doing. I would argue that Judaism for many generations has been exactly that. Judaism, it, is what Jews are doing. And it changes with every generation. Israel and Israeli Judaism is not the first change. We know that Judaism changed from biblical time to Mishnaic times. It changed from before the destruction of the temple to after the destruction of the temple. We know that there were evolutions in the way Judaism was observed. I think Israeli Judaism is is more than an evolution. It might be even called a revolution. But again, this is part of, of thinking about Jewish history and Jewish evolution as a living. Judaism is a living culture. It's not a, a set of ideas set in stone that we all believe in. It's not a set of practices that we all must observe. And we know for a fact that most Jews in the world today do not observe the exact same things. So 
if you or me or any other person thinks about Judaism as a living culture, we see it in Israel evolving, changing, you know, wearing new clothes every year, every decade. It, it changes with us. It changes with time. Are Israeli Jews becoming more secular or more religious? So you did this poll of 3,000 people, you said, right? Well, 3,000 and then some, because we then added a few layers in, uh, in having more polls. But are they becoming more secular? That depends on your definition of secularism. Okay, they, so define secularism. They become more secular if you consider religiosity in the orthodox way. If you say people are religious if people observe this set of rules written in the Shulchan Aruch in the 15th century and in any other way of observing Judaism is secularism, then the answer is yes, they are becoming more secular. But if secularism for you is complete atheism or the notion that people uh, shed away their sense of Jewishness, then the answer is no, they're not becoming less Jewish. They become more secular, but also in some ways more Jewish, or at least as Jewish as they were before. Mm -hmm. we, we are speaking in English, so I assume most of our listeners will be non-Israelis. For people who live outside of Israel, you know, this, this idea of having Jews who are less religious in the traditional way, but are still very much Jewish, could be an anathema, but, but that's the way it is in Israel. People do not feel obligated to follow exact commandments to retain their very strong sense of belonging to the Jewish culture, to the Jewish people. You, you already said that. We have geography here. We have language here. We have boundaries here. We have uh, uh, family ties here and community ties here. It's all within the state of Israel. You don't have to search for it. It surrounds you. And when it surrounds you, you know, it becomes a part of you. Yeah, it's really amazing. You mentioned also in one of your talks, Israeli music. And oh. Yossi Kleiner-Levy, who was the first guest on the podcast, he's very into Israeli music. Yossi is giving wonderful talks about different Israeli songs and, exactly. and their meaning. And he really talked about the transition from songs like Mashiach Loba, the Messiah isn't coming. You know, like really secular, anti-religious songs. And now you have all these secular musicians singing religious songs. Well, I would argue that Mashiach Loba is also a religious song. Because he didn't come Mas yet? Well, it's, it's, it's um, you know, he, he didn't come. We are still waiting for him. There, there is a sense of, of waiting for, for Mashiach in, in uh, this song that is, uh, you know. But he's also uh, not going to call in that song. Uh, well, the song says, if you, if you want to follow the exact words, yeah. it says, he does not come, he does not call. The song doesn't say he will never call. It says he doesn't call. I like that. Which, Hasidic interpretation right, of the exactly. song. Yeah, so, you know, if you mention Mashiach in a Hebrew song, just, just using that word has so many, adds so many layers to the song that you can't find anywhere else. And of course, today when we have music that quotes from, from different psukim and from different verses, you know, in, in, in the books of the Torah and the, and the prophets and from Talmudic sayings, etc., everything you write in Hebrew has so many layers 
of meaning and so much culture has so much depth, cultural depth, that only Israeli Jews understand that this makes it unique. And again, it, it becomes a part of what I call Jewishness. Yes, it, it's not the Jewishness of the 15th or 14th or 16th century. It's a Jewishness unique to this place, but it's no less Jewish than previous what we had in previous generations. That's an interesting statement. It's no less Jewish. I mean, in previous generations, before the Enlightenment, before emancipation, those were like the two big events that shocked the Jewish world. Everybody lived within a Jewish community, and everybody more or less kept along with the lines of the community. So, Well, except for those who left. Okay, and there so were, they left. Well, then they left. And then they were gone. Well, but today in Israel, they don't leave. Because there's no place to go. There, there are places to go, but, but again... If, if you want if you want to argue that making it easy is problematic, that making it attractive is problematic, then yes, it was more difficult, more demanding. you know you had a higher bar that you had to to cross to remain Jewish, to be part of this community. It is easier today to be Jewish in Israel, but then what you get is a society, a thriving, growing society of Jews that does not diminish, does not decline, does not find itself fighting for its mere existence. It is a community, you know, it's, the example I, I often use is, is the one that, that mentions the numbers of Jews from a hundred years ago until today. So it's, it's very easy to remember. In 1918, at the end of World War I, there were 60,000 Jews in Israel. 30 years later, 1948, the state was born 10 times more, 600,000 Jews. And in 2018, exactly 100 years later, there were 6 million Jews living in Israel. Hmm. So 100 times more within 100 years. If that's not a success, I don't know what success means. Oh, Israel is an incredible success. You personally. So... You talk, I listen to your talks. I don't know if you mentioned it in the book. You grew up in Jerusalem. You grew up in a religious home. I did. You said your father also wrote the speeches for the Yom Ma'ut ceremony. He, he did, well, something yes. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. And now you live in Tel Aviv. You mentioned in one of the talks how your wife is secular and your kids. So where do you see yourself Jewishly? I'm an Israeli Jew. But there's all kinds of Israeli Jews. Just look at your book. Right. So I'm, I'm one of them. And in some ways, I'm more religious than not. And in some ways, I'm more traditional than not. And in some ways, I might be even secular. And that's fine. You know, there is a very wide spectrum that you can find here. And one of the things I like about Israeli Judaism is that as you move through this spectrum, and, and, you know, you can change things throughout your life. You live in one place and then in a different place uh, with one uh, set of sentiments and then with a different one. You never lose your sense of identity because it's always, again, it's always around you. So, you know, if you're asking about specific things that I do or, or, or do not do, I don't find it interesting. You know, I, do I make kiddush? The answer is yes. Do I fast on some gedalia? The answer is not really. You know, that, these are just unimportant anecdotes. How do you decide what's important and what's not? I just, I just do. 
I just do. I'm an independent, an independent Jew with, uh, you know, having an autonomous way of thinking about my identity. And I just decide what, what I think is important for me and what's not, what I think is manageable for me and what's not, what I think is uh, important in the greater schemes of things and what's not. And, you know, I just make decisions. It's for your own personal sense of fulfillment. That's what you're saying? No, it's not for my own sense of fulfillment, but it's a personal decision. I don't, I don't take orders from anyone. Mm. Uh, I never did. The home I grew up in was also a home in which no one took orders from anyone. Although it was a strictly orthodox home, I don't ever remember my parents consulting with a rabbi or asking anyone what to do and why. They made their own decisions based on their own judgment. And I try to do the same thing myself in the best way I can. So that leads into a question that I had later on. But since we're talking about it, you, you're saying how you're an Israeli Jew. And one of the first thoughts I had is this transferable. Can an American Jew be an Israeli Jew? No. The answer obviously, is no. we defined it. No. And no, you have to be in the state of Israel. I'm guessing that you have to speak Hebrew, but if you don't, your kids will speak Hebrew, so that doesn't really matter. Right. Let's say, theoretically, somebody finishes the army, they travel, they're gone for a year, completely disconnected from Israeli culture, the state of Israel, maybe even from speaking Hebrew. How does Israeli Judaism travel with them? It doesn't. Well, it might travel with the person himself because he's, you know, he will have his childhood memories and maybe some of the maybe he'll retain, uh, he or she will retain some of the practices that they used to, you know, the love as they were growing up. But generally speaking, as a model for retaining Judaism, as a model of strengthening and, and keeping Judaism alive, Israeli Judaism only works in Israel. It does not work any, anywhere else. In other places, you need to find different tools for keeping Judaism alive. It does not, you, you cannot just borrow things from Israel and say, okay, I'll do Israeli Judaism in Chicago. You can't. The you know, school system in Chicago does not follow the Hebrew calendar. TV in Chicago is not in Hebrew. The language, the, the songs, you mentioned the music, the, the songs in English do not quote from the Torah in Hebrew in the same fashion. So no, you cannot practice Israeli Judaism elsewhere. So as soon as you get on the plane, you've got to find another way to have a Jewish identity. You, you have to, I prefer to say that you have to open the toolbox that we gathered in many thousands of years of, of being Jewish and pick something else. There are tools in this box that can keep you as Jewish in other places. But these are not the tools used in Israel. So now those are, those are Jewish tools, Judaism, halachic Judaism. Those are tools developed in diaspora communities when there is no Jewish state around them. Right. Uh, tools um, fit for a situation in which the Jews are a small minority. Tools fitting a situation in which uh, Jews do not control or dominate government public uh, opinion, uh, public sphere, all the things that a state provides for, 
Uh, and then, of course, you need different tools. Yeah, there, there's, no, there's no national Hanukkah. There's no uh, uh, national Sukkot. Not everybody is going on vacation during Sukkot because, you know, if you live in the United States, Sukkot is just another day. Yeah, here we never Is- celebrated Sukkot when okay. I was growing up. Okay, so here in Israel, whether you like it or not, whether you feel religious or not, you'll remember Sukkot is coming because schools are off. Then you can say, well, I don't build a sukkah. Okay, you don't have to. But there's no way for you to forget that Sukkot is here. Or, you know, in the book, I use a, a more marginal holiday, the holiday of Shavuot. You right, know? you talk about the commercials on TV. Right, just one day. Just what, can you forget Shavuot in Israel? The answer is no. You can't forget Shavuot in Israel because whenever you'll go to the supermarket, there will be a sale for, you know, of cheesecakes or whatever products that they put out for Shavuot and you'll know it's coming. You can, you know, you can ignore it if you want, but, but it's, it's all around you. So that's why when I was growing up, I grew up reform, but then I became a Baal through Chabad. So there were Israelis in the reform shul, and they weren't religious. They didn't come from Israel with a, a very strong Jewish identity, but they had to hold on to something. They wanted to give their kids something. The Israeli and the Israelis ended up in the Chabad houses as well. The ones that didn't, their kids just became Americans, wanted nothing to do with Judaism, Hebrew, nothing. So, so one of the things that, that I'm going to say, and you probably wouldn't appreciate or wouldn't like, is that the synagogue is something that you have to have if you do not live in Israel. In Israel, you don't have to have a synagogue. Well, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, most Israelis don't have a synagogue. They rarely go to synagogue, if ever. You can be strongly Jewish in Israel without ever setting foot in a synagogue. Right, there are and that's other, what Israeli Judaism is. That's the whole point, right? There are other channels through which you can channel your, your sense of Jewishness. In other communities, whether it's the United States or Britain or France or South Africa or Australia, you must have a formalized institution. So maybe it's not the synagogue, maybe it's the JCC or the Jewish youth group. Or, but you must have an institution because the surroundings are not Jewish. Here, the institution is the state. Right. The institution is where you live. You don't have an extra layer of institutionalized Judaism, and that's why it's so easy in Israel. You don't have to pay dues. Well, you pay dues to the state, and it will take care of many of the things that will make your atmosphere feel very Jewish. So yes, the synagogue, the synagogue is a victim of Israeli Judaism. The more we live here, the less we will feel the urge to go to a synagogue every day or every week or every month. And many Israelis will say, well, yes, I can go to the synagogue just once a year or once in a lifetime when I have my bar mitzvah. Exactly. And still, again, and this will not necessarily be a sign that they no longer feel Jewish. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so you the have the opposite. You know, I'm an immigrant. I've been here for 25 years. And I live in a house of Israelis. My wife is Israeli. All the kids are Israeli. But I'm an immigrant. And I in- interact with a lot of immigrants. They come here and they say, I don't have a community. I don't have a shul. When I was in America, I was in shul three times a day. I was there for events. The rabbi had me at his house. I come here. It's like nothing. Can- they can't find their place because it's so big and it's so free. The shul in America was like an oasis. 
in the desert. Well, yeah, you can find shuls in Israel in which, to which people go three times a, way, a day and in which the rabbi invites you for Shabbat dinner. You know, there are such communities in Israel, in, uh, in uh, small Yishuvim, communities. Mainly. In Yishuvim, but also, also in, in, in neighborhoods. In, um, I know such neighborhoods in Jerusalem and in other places where you can find arrangements that seem somewhat similar to the arrangements you have abroad. But most Israelis, no, they don't need, no, they don't need such that. arrangements. I'm talking about immigrants. Right? And they don't miss it because they, they never had such thing before. So it's not as if they feel that something is missing right. from their lives. Because they never had it to right. start with. Right. One of the examples you give of Israeli Judaism is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Yeah. Where one of the most provocative examples. Yeah, it definitely bothered me personally, where you said, here is a religious day that for generations, for thousands of years, Jews fasted, prayed, and now it's become the Israeli holiday of riding bicycles because the streets are empty. And a hundred years from now, somebody might look at Israelis and say, how did this come about? That on Yom Kippur, this is the day of bicycles. I see that as a cultural event, but not as a Jewish event. Well, my argument about Yom Kippur is a bit more nuanced, I, I'd hope, but it is, it is provocative in, in, in the following sense. Yom Kippur, as the most important day in our calendar, has gone through a few evolutions. Okay? We know if you go to the Talmud, you read Masechet Yom of the Talmud, and you try to understand what's Yom Kippur about, it's essentially about blood and smoke. This is, this is what they do. The whole, the whole Masechet, the whole tractate of, of Yoma describes, you know, how the, the Kohanim are going through the motions of working, doing the work of Yom Kippur, taking beasts and slaughtering them and using... Spreading the blood around. Ex- exactly. Yeah, it's very so, gory. So imagining, imagining the sound, just you know, imagining the sound of Yom Kippur during the days of the Second Temple, there is something quite unsettling about it. It was the sound of a slaughterhouse. Then after the destruction of the Temple, it became a day of silence. People would go to the synagogue and silently pray. So it became a very a different day in many ways. And what we show in the book, again, it's, it's more a question than, than a conclusion. The question is whether Yom Kippur is now going through yet another evolution. Because we know that Yom Kippur in Israel is very different than what it used to be in other places, what it still is in other places. There is still a very unique sound to Yom Kippur, but it's a different sound. It's the sound of children riding their bikes in Israeli streets. Again, it's unique, it's typical. You, you walk out the door on Yom Kippur, you know it's Yom Kippur. You, you, you will not confuse it with any other day. So it's, it's the right date, it's the right time, it's very different. So, so it's the right atmosphere in the sense that it feels unique. Maybe it's also right in the sense that it's quiet, that people are doing something. You know, there is some sense of even holiness to this, you know, no transportation, just children riding their bikes in empty streets, but it's a different Yom Kippur, no doubt. Now, if people are troubled by the fact that many Israelis don't go to shul on Yom Kippur, 
Well, that's the way it is. I don't know why people should be troubled. That's a personal choice. You want to go, you go. You don't want to go, you don't go. Yeah, but they will be troubled by the notion that these people do not go to the synagogue and still have a very strong sense of doing something that they associate with the Jewish calendar. Mm-hmm. That's the Jewish calendar. What do you do? On Rosh Hashanah, I dip apple in honey. On Pesach, I eat matzah. On Shavuot, I eat cheesecake. And on Yom Kippur, I ride my bike. Jewish practice. Well, Israeli. Israeli Judaism, yeah. In Uh Israeli Judaism, that's Jewish practice. Now, whether you agree with that or not, again, it's a provocative idea that that we raise in the book and I think merits consideration. It's definitely interesting. It might be new Jewish practice because if we come back in 300 years or 400 years, and this is what Jews are doing on Yom Kippur. Israeli Jews. Israeli Jews. You don't expect Jews in Chicago to be doing that. No, I don't. It wouldn't make sense. I don't. Well, it's it's not possible. Mm -hmm. It's not possible because as far as I know, highways in Chicago are still busy on Yom Kippur. So you can't ride your bike. That's, that's the uniqueness of, of Israel. That's the uniqueness of Israeli Judaism. It makes a different type of Jewish practice possible. And that's, Jewish, that's why it's, it's not trans- transferable to other places. That's yeah. why you cannot take Israeli Judaism and, and practice it in San Francisco or Chicago or anywhere else. You talk a lot about Hanukkah in the book and lighting a menorah, which is transferable. No matter where you are in the world. Well, Jews light, light candles in, in all places. That's one of the, of the practices that are highly observed by Jews all over the world. You know, it's easy, it's fun, it's family-oriented. It's a hero story. It coincides with uh, many other holidays of light in, uh, in which Jews reside. So, you know, it's the... Other holidays of light? Exactly. What do you mean? Christmas? Of course. Of course. So That's when, a holiday of light? It is. It is a holiday of light. Uh, for me, it was a holiday of trees and sails and okay. music. Uh, but, but also lights. Um, my grandfather had a Christmas tree. My grandfather was from Lithuania. And he had a Christmas tree because it made him feel like he was an American. Okay. So clearly for many Americans to have a tree makes them feel American. For many Jewish Americans, having a menorah is a substitute or a complement to having a tree. And, you know, that's fine. It's the holiday season in America, and Jews have their own holiday in the holiday season. And that's why we see in all studies that Hanukkah is a holiday that is highly observed in all places. But it is observed in Israel in a somewhat different fashion and with a somewhat different interpretation. In Israel, Hanukkah is a holiday of Jewish might. The whole ethos of Hanukkah and the Maccabees is associated with modern Zionism. These are the heroes that came before us and fought for their freedom, for having their state, for having their autonomy. So it's very easy for Israelis to identify with the uh, leaders of the Maccabee era in such fashion. Because they were fighters. In other places, it's, it's not that easy. Because they were fighting against... The Hellenists. They were fighting against secular culture. They were fighting against Western culture. They were fighting against uh, intermarriage. 
they were fighting against many things that, you know, that are more complicated to explain and understand in other places. So in diaspora communities, it is becoming more a holiday of religious freedom because they were fighting also against oppression. The, uh, the Hashmonians fought against religious oppression. And this is something that all Jews can identify with. The more nationalistic, patriotic message that we associate with Hanukkah here in Israel is less transferable to other communities. So you had 115% of Israelis said they lit Hanukkiot. Right. Well, when we, when we run the, the, again, this was a, a long study with uh, many surveys, but one of the surveys we uh, decided to ask about practices for Hanukkah. And on lighting the menorah, we had uh, three basic answers. I don't light a menorah. I light a menorah a few days, but not all days. And then I light a menorah every night, like for eight nights. And we quickly discovered that there was no one saying, I don't light a menorah. Everybody lights a menorah in Israel. But then we took the two other answers, part of the days, some days and all days, or some nights and all nights, and we combined the answers and we got to like 115%, which was fine with me, but not really with Professor Fuchs, because as a mathematician, he told me there is no such thing as 115%. That's impossible. When you get to 100%, you stop. So we had to look at the, at the actual answers of people. And at some point, we realized that there were people who just to emphasize that they truly meant it when they said every night, they marked both some nights and every night, just to make sure. They're clear. And I said to, to Professor Fuchs, well, is that really possible? No one, no one is, you know, everybody here is lighting candles. Let's, let's look at it again. And we looked at all the data, you know, uh, an Excel sheet with 3,000 respondents line by line. And by the time we got to the end of it, said, okay, that, that's the way it is. There's no one who doesn't light candles on Hanukkah. And then Camille, Professor Fuchs, looked at me somewhat embarrassingly and raised his hand. He said, what? He said, well, me. He said, you what? He said, I don't light candles on Hanukkah. And I said, really? You don't? He said, I don't. I used to when I had little children at home. Now I don't. So we found one. The only one we found <laughs> is the one who conducted the study. This story has, a, has a, um, an ending because uh, two years later, it's been uh, two and a half or three years since uh, we run the, the surveys. And in uh, last Hanukkah, uh, Camille called me uh, one morning and he said, guess where I was last night? And I said, where were you? And he said, at friend's house. He said, okay, that's nice. He said, guess what they were doing? He said, what, what were they doing? He said, they were lighting candles for Hanukkah. I said, oh, that's wonderful. And you were there. He said, yes. And then he said, and just guess who lighted the candles. And by that time, I, I realized it was probably him. And he said, I did. So he was the last Jew who didn't light candles <laughs> on Hanukkah and we lost him too. We are now at 100% of Israeli Jews lighting Hanukkah candles. And that shows you the effectiveness of what you studied, of what you're showing in this book, that the culture helps people to maintain their Jewish identity. Even somebody who didn't 
at least for Hanukkah, it brought him to lighting a Hanukkah. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think I, I asked this question uh, not on Hanukkah, but on Pesach. You know, when people, when we ask people where, whether they go to the Seder, mm-hmm. and 98% or so say they do. They ask, how, how does one get to 98%? And the answer is, because those who don't will literally sit alone in the dark. There's nothing else to do on Passover night. In Israel, everybody goes to the Seder. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's what you do. It's just, why, why would you not do it? It's fun. It's family-oriented. You don't have to go to a Seder of people, you know, with long beards, you know, demanding that you sing the Agada from beginning to end. You, you might go to a lighter Seder with a lighter set of, of readings and songs. But it will still be a Seder because this is what we do here in Israel. On Passover night, we go to a Seder. The rest of the time we have, I want to talk about American Jews and Israeli Jews. In your survey, you had half a million people identify as Reform or Conservative, half a million Israelis identify as Reform, Conservative Jews. But you said there's only 10,000 members of Reform and Conservative Synagogue. So what is that? Well, Reform and Conservative Judaism in Israel is a, is a strange phenomenon. It is true indeed that in recent decades, we see a rise in the number of Jews in Israel who self-define as Reform and or Conservative. Uh, we see a decline in the number of Israelis who say they are Orthodox. So basically, when we give people four options, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, and just Jew, Many of them, about half will say they're just Jewish, will have no affiliation with any stream. About a third will say they are Orthodox, and these will be the people we call religious Jews, you know, Haredi Jews, ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox Jews. About a third of Israelis, of Jewish Israelis, are religious Jews, and these are the people who self-define as Orthodox. And then there is this segment of about 10 to 15% of people who are secular, for the most part, but do choose to self-define as conservative and reform. Why? There are two possible answers. One is because the synagogue they do not attend is a reform or a conservative synagogue, which means that when they have a bar mitzvah, they'll go to a reform shul, or when they have a wedding, they will ask a, a conservative rabbi to perform. And this corresponds with the second part of the answer. And the second part is essentially political. Saying in Israel that you are a reform or a conservative Jew is much more a political statement than it is a statement about a certain religiosity. It is essentially saying, I'm Jewish. I want to identify with something that sounds like a Jewish stream. And I want to make it clear that I'm not Orthodox, which basically means I do not identify with the Orthodox rabbinate. I don't approve of Orthodox rule. I do not appreciate uh, Orthodox coercion in cases that there is Orthodox coercion. It's in many ways a statement of people saying we are not happy with the Orthodox institutionalized Judaism. So we prefer to identify with something else, whether in practice, when we need to connect through some official channels, then we go to 
a reform shul, but we know that reform shuls you know, don't have, there's no 10% of the population that go to reform shuls every Shabbat. So the occasion case in which we need a synagogue, then we will connect with a reform or conservative shul, but much more so it's a statement. And I think it's an important statement. I think the fact that so many Israelis are unsatisfied with Orthodox Judaism is something that should raise the alarm of Orthodox Jews. They should be aware of it and they should take measures to make it less so. If I were the chief rabbi and I would see some of the numbers that we, uh, that we found in, in our surveys, I, I'd be highly concerned. When you see that about 70% of secular young Israelis say, I do not intend to marry through the rabbinate, that should raise an alarm. That, I'm, I'm not, you know, this is not an ideological statement for me. The, the book, you read the book, you know, it's, it attempts to be not non-ideological. I come from a certain background. Professor Fuchs comes from a completely different background. We don't agree on many things. We, it's a descriptive book. It's not a, we, we do not tell people what they should do. We just tell them what they do and what they might not know about what other people are doing. And when so many Israelis say, we are not pleased with the rabbinate, we are not pleased with the Orthodox, and hence we choose to identify with other streams, it means something. You mention in the book, for Israelis, progressive Judaism is often associated with disputes. So you have half a million Israeli Jews identifying with these movements, probably not understanding what the reform movement stands for, or where conservative Judaism came from. Like you said, they want to be associated with something that's Jewish, but not, not orthodoxy. But in the public sphere here in Israel, we hear a lot about the women of the wall. We hear about the reform movement taking court cases to the Supreme Court. I had a, a conversation with Eric Yoffe, the former head of the reform movement, right. and we talked a lot about this. And I told them how Israelis, from my point of view, they don't seem to care very much about American Jews and the reform movement. They, they live their lives as Israelis, and that shows up in the news every now and then. He was upset at me. He said, that's post-Zionism, and how can you be like that? But my question is, did the progressive movements in America make a mistake by making so much noise about how they have to have rights and be equal, instead of making it attractive for Israelis to come and pray in those synagogues? Well, I think that the progressive movements still have chance in Israel. I, I don't think they're, you know, we are, we are at the beginning of a very long journey. And those who assume that the progressive movements already lost this battle, I think are making a premature conclusion. The 10% of secular Israelis who self-define as reform and conservative are the people who support women of the wall and the people who support the court cases brought forward by the reform movement. These are people who believe that Judaism in Israel should be more relaxed in many ways and that there should not be a religious institution that controls the way we express our Jewishness. Now again, you, there, there are arguments to be made for and against these people. Then again, 
secular Israelis who are the majority of Israelis and will remain the majority of Israelis for a very long time, if not forever, are looking for ways to be Jewish and they don't seem to like the Orthodox way. So, you know, with smart policies and investments, it's possible that someday these Israelis will look at the, the reform movement or the conservative movement and will say, okay, this is a good channel for us. Now, will it be the same reform movement that you have in the United States? No, it will have to have adaptations to fit with the Israeli atmosphere and with Israeli way of thinking and with the Israeli way of practicing Judaism. You know, if reform movement is about having a large temple, a large suburban temple for Israelis to come to, I don't think that's working for Israelis. They don't, they don't need the temple. They don't need to come every week for, um, you know, for, to a service to feel Jewish. Yeah, once a week to reconnect with their sense of Jewishness. So these movements will have to find their voice and their interpretation within the Israeli context. Mm -hmm. But I don't, think, I don't think they're doomed to fail, and I don't think they're making a mistake by fighting to have a, a foothold in Israel, I think. You know, by all means, they have a right. And I would encourage them. I, I want all Jews to feel that they have a stake in the state of Israel. And if they have a stake, of course, they'll, they'll fight for their way of, of thinking. They'll fight for their interpretation of Jewishness. And it's also fine to fight that. Again, by saying that they should fight for their cause, I'm not saying they should fight and the other people should just lay down and... No, it's okay if other people fight back as long as we have a civilized and meaningful dialogue I'm happy with it, and I cannot guarantee success. But again, why, why would anyone want Reform Jews or conservative Jews not to feel that they have a stake in Israel? How much influence do you think American Jews should have on what happens in the state of Israel? I think they should have influence in the sense that they should participate in all dialogues that concern Jewish identity. Jewish meaning, Jewish history and culture. I don't think it's reasonable to expect that Israeli Jews will follow the prescribed policies advocated by American Jews when it comes to security or foreign policy or taxes or the economy. I don't expect American Jews to do what I tell them to do when it comes to American politics. I don't think it's my right to tell them who to vote for. I, I don't have a stake in, uh, you know, social security in America. I don't have a stake in immigration policy in America. And they don't have a stake in immigration policy in Israel. So it's a, it's a delicate dance. I understand the people who want to weigh in and tell us what they think. I accept the sentiment that they have a right to tell me what they think, and I would encourage them to do it with a certain sense of humility. Because this place, you know, is up and running, and there is a system here, we call it democracy, and there is a government, and it's making decisions. 
I don't always like the decisions it is making, nor do I expect American Jews to always appreciate the decisions we are making. Again, speak up, okay, criticize with caution, weigh in by all means. You know, I, I think it's, a, it's, it's mostly a matter of having a good sense of balance, how to do it in a measured way, not in a provocative, counterproductive way. Because, you know, when people begin to speak in ways that are incomprehensible to their counterparts, then, you know, they, they, they lose the ear of Israelis. And again, at the same token, Israelis lose the ear of Americans when they say things that are offensive or incomprehensible or unbalanced. So this is on page 175 in the chapter, Are We One People? I'm already worried. <laughs> you quote Elan Ezrahi in a report that he submitted to the Jewish Federation of New York. The more Israeli Jews express views of belonging, unity, and responsibility to the Jewish diaspora, the more they tend to be judgmental and critical of the core values of the largest Jewish community outside of Israel. So the more Israelis know American Jews, the more critical they are of them. Why do you think that is? We call it the uh, connection paradox. I actually have a graph that shows this paradox. And you take two questions. To what extent you worry and care for other Jews? That's one question. And to what extent you feel critical of other Jews? That's a different question. And you show that these two questions, you know, show the, the opposite trends, which means, you know, I'll just give you an example. The ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel care a lot about the Jewish people. They are also highly critical of Jews who live in other places because most Jews in other places are not strictly Orthodox. So they see them as assimilationists or not serious. The more secular Jews in Israel, they will have no philosophical problems or no identity crisis when they see the way American Jews practice their Judaism. But on the other hand, when you measure the level to which they care for these Jews, you get a sense that their level of connection is not as, not as high. They don't feel as strongly connected as the more observing Jews. So there is a paradox here. You know, the, the, the people with whom American Jews can easily connect are the people who don't really feel strongly that they need such connection. And the people with whom they can easily connect are the people with which they'll have the most difficult time connecting. That's the way it is. That's a good point. Okay, so the last question, the billboard question. Imagine you had a billboard that millions of Jews would stop and read for a few seconds. What message would you put on your billboard? That was the easiest question of the day. Am Israel Chai. And what does that mean? It means that we are still here throughout many generations, challenges and difficulties, and we intend to stay here. And as long as we are an Am, a people, as long as we can retain this sense of a journey that we take together with all the difficulties that we have along the way, we will remain alive. Alive not just in the physical sense, 
alive in the cultural, meaningful sense. Uh, I think it captures everything I'd like to remind people of. We live in the best time for Jews ever. 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 And we tend to forget that. We tend to complain and, you know, forget the fact that Jews never had it so good. So Am Israel Chai is a reminder that we are alive and that we were alive even in more difficult times and that we should brace ourselves for the future. There's nothing more to say as far as I'm concerned. That was beautiful. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Shmuel Rosner, the co-author of Israeli Judaism, senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute, the political editor of the Jewish Journal, and a journalist at Mariv, amongst many other places. I really enjoyed that conversation with Shmuel. I learned so much from him. I hope you did as well. Thank you to you, my loyal listeners, for listening to this podcast. As you can see, sometimes the delays between episodes or a few months, but I'm working on new guests in Bezat Hashem. There'll be many more episodes to come. Make sure you check out my other podcast, The Hasidic Story Project. You can find that by searching for my name, Barak Holman, B-A-R-A-K-H-U-L-L-M-A-N. And if you haven't done so yet, make sure to check out my books on Amazon. You can find them also by searching for my name. They're wonderful, fun-to-read books. And there's a third book on the way. I'm working on editing it right now. Thank you again for listening, and I look forward to our next conversation together.